Bible Worm, Bible Worm, reading the Bible with Bible Worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian. This week, we conclude our Advent series with the less famous version of the Christmas story, as told in Matthew 1, 18-25. This quieter version of the Christmas story focuses on Joseph, who marries his betrothed Mary despite her unplanned pregnancy, gives Jesus his name, and adopts Jesus into the family line of David, credentialing him as the Jewish Messiah. Joseph's role is mostly to keep his male ego out of the way, and he ultimately does so without hesitation. We also discuss the two names given to Jesus in this text, and what they tell us about both Jesus and God. The name Jesus, or Joshua in Hebrew, indicates God's power to save humankind from the powers of sin and death, while the name Emmanuel, or God with us, gestures to the intimate presence of that God here among us in quiet and unassuming ways. In this baby Jesus, God's saving power is present among us. What a beautiful image. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, how are you this week? I am okay. How are you? Well, I am at the tail end of a little a little light COVID action. Light COVID. Yeah. Like, I like to call it, it was, light COVID. I'm glad, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it was I'm glad it was light COVID. Yeah. But I'm sorry it was COVID. Well, it's really kind of remarkable. You know, almost the whole time we've been doing Bible Worm has been in the COVID era. And this is the first time I've actually had COVID at all. And so it was Kind of amazing to make it this far. I it's think it's a long in, run. Yeah, the pandemic. Yeah, it's like one, <laughs> one of those of the things last where men standing for a little mm-hmm. while. You're like, oh no, it's gonna like there's. I'm gonna drop one of these balls here in a minute, and then so the COVID ball has now been dropped. Uh, for me, it was actually not at all bad. You can probably hear a little bit. I'm a little bit nasally, but mostly it was just a sore throat. The the mm-hmm. um, complicated part is like now my family is like, how do they have to quarantine and wear masks to school? And like, oh, mm-hmm. it's so complicated. I didn't really understand. I didn't really understand. Well, may your healing continue and wrap up quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Especially because we're well into the holiday season right now. And yes. it is a bad time to yes. be a pastor's spouse. Uh, and be out of commission. So Mm -hmm. here we go. So Amy, this week we are reading the, we're going to read two versions of the Christmas story this year. Every year up until now, we've done the sort of Christmas Eve special, which is Luke chapter two, which is the sort of famous Christmas story. It's the one Linus reads in the Charles Charlie Brown Christmas special. That's so funny. When you said the Christmas Eve special, I totally pictured the peanuts like Christmas yeah, that's the and one. That is Luke actually two, what you're one talking to about. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be the text for Christmas Eve and also Christmas Day, which is kind of that's a lot of that one text. But we we've done that text every year thus far in the narrative lectionary, but we've not done the text that we have today, which is Matthew's version of the Christmas story, which is a 
I mean, the whole story, we'll, we'll get back to it a little bit later. Like it goes on for a while, but the Christmas story itself is quite brief in Matthew's gospel. We're in Matthew chapter one, verses 18 to 25, which is the only part dealing with Christmas story proper. And then we get the Magi, the wise men and, and all that stuff, which we'll, we'll get back to in a couple of weeks. Mm. But we are uh, reading, a, reading a familiar story in that it's Christmas story, but not familiar at all in that we've never read this actual version of the story before. Good. And um, perhaps this goes without saying, but this is our the first text of our season from the New Testament. It is. It's always a little we bit of an interesting transition to go testament from. Testament hopping. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's true. And we're we're entering into the Matthew's gospel in kind of an interesting way. Today we're in the Christmas story, and then we're going to go back in a couple of episodes to get the beginning of Matthew's gospel, and then we're going to move forward oh, from there. So we're, Interesting. Yeah, I was trying to decide whether we should do our sort of introduction to the gospel of Matthew, which is where we're going to be for the whole spring of the narrative lectionary. But if it's okay with you, I've kind of decided we should just let this Christmas story be a it's Christmas story, and we'll introduce Matthew in a couple of weeks when we're settling in for the long haul. Does that sound okay? Sure. Yeah, that sounds like a plan. So what should we say before we get started with this text for today? Okay, so given that we're going to do the whole introduction to this text itself to Matthew next time, I'll say something else by way of introduction, which is this. It is. It feels... A little weird to me as a Jewish person <laughs> to be reading these texts with you. And I know we do it every year and every year it's it's fine, but I just need to maybe say things that don't really need to be said, but here they are. I, I'm just one person reading this book. I, I don't want to represent what all Jewish people would think if they were reading this book or, you know, quote unquote, how Jews think about this book. Most Jews don't really think about this book. And so it's not like the question itself doesn't, doesn't even really land anywhere. My favorite story about how much Jews don't think about this book was, wasn't there one time when somebody in your old congregation asked you something about the gospel? I was teaching an adult education (laughs) class at the Jewish community center. Yeah. They asked you about the gospel of Mike. The Gospel of Mike, yeah. They yeah. Want to I mean, it was close, like Mark, Mike. Yeah. yeah. No, it's really, it's just, you know, it's like if I picked a particular story out of the Quran and said, what do you think about yeah. that story? And it's like, you don't know that the story's there. You're not, I mean, you just don't think anything about it. Right. It, but then layer on top of that, that there is, you know, that that there is reference to Jewish stuff in this text. And so it's complicated for me to read it and say, like, am I reading this as a Jewish person and saying, well, that's not what that text from Isaiah means? Or am I reading it knowing that this is the New Testament? And for this text, that is what that text means. It's just, it's complicated. So you, every year you just hold me with so much grace and um, generosity in my struggles with this. And I just in case in case people haven't heard me struggle through this before, I just want to lay out, there's all sharing my humanity with you people. We're just, we're going to do this. <laughs> we're going to read this text and, um, and it's going to be okay. We're going to see what we can learn. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Amy. And I really appreciate your willingness to read these texts alongside of, side of us here on the Bible Worm podcast. And I mean, my experience has been that you're just an insightful reader of texts and you notice really interesting and important things. 
and you sometimes fill in some background that changes the way that I look at text. And you often sort of fly a little like flag of warning about like, hey, if you want to read the New Testament in ways that are not anti-Jewish, like maybe you want to rethink this thing <laughs> that, that sometimes uh, gets said in the New Testament. Like there's all sorts of ways in which uh, your reading of this is, is really appreciated. appreciated. Every year I worry that you're going to be like, nope, not doing the New Testament this year. And every year you come along for whatever every reason. Every year we come back. So thanks. Yeah. I have a little um, sticky note on my computer with some wisdom from one of my bat mitzvah students, and it is this. If you don't think about it, it's not weird. <laughs> that was her insight on her Torah portion. It was really weird when she started thinking about it, but if she didn't think about it, it wasn't weird. So I'm going to go with that, and yeah, we're just not going to think about it. We're just going to read it, and it we're won't just gonna be do weird. It. Yeah. yeah. Not weird at all. All right. Great. <laughs> Amy, I don't know that this will strike you. I don't even know if it strikes most readers who are familiar with this text, but the the birth story that we have in Matthew's gospel is quite different, in fact, than the story that we have in Luke's gospel. They just sort of frame the story differently. Like a lot of the things are the same. Jesus is mm-hmm. born in Bethlehem. He's going to grow up in Nazareth. Mary is his mother, and she's going to be found with child by the Holy Spirit. Like the, the big strokes of the story are the same. But the sort of how do we get there is quite different. And with the Bible Worm Collaborative, we went back and forth about how much we should try to draw out those distinctions or how much we should try to bring the stories together. My own take on it has been, let's just let Matthew's story be Matthew's story and Mm -hmm. try to bracket all the things that that we might or might not know from Luke's story. Mm -hmm. So in this story, we don't have any census called by the emperor. We don't have any long journey from Nazareth Nazareth to Bethlehem. We don't have an angel appearing to Mary. All of those things which are in the Luke text just aren't in the Matthew text. Mm -hmm. It is possible, and many Christians do kind of read the two stories together as though they're just like different perspectives on the same story. Totally legitimate way of reading it. My own approach to the biblical text is to let each biblical author say what they say Mm -hmm. and not hold them to things that they don't say. And so I think that's going to be my approach here is to just let the, the telling of Matthew's birth story be the, the way that it is mm-hmm. and try not mm-hmm. to assume the stories from Luke. Does that, does that sound like a reasonable approach? I love that. I, yes, I love that approach because whatever it is, whether or not they're really talking about the same story from different perspectives, what's important to Matthew is important to Matthew. Right. And so if we just let that stand, yeah, I think we can— we can draw things out that might have gotten blurry if we started overlaying all kinds of details from Luke. All right. So we're going to come back to the first part of Matthew's gospel, which is really just the genealogy of Jesus. Like who were Jesus's ancestors um, in a couple of weeks. So today we're going to pick up in verse 18 and read through 25. It's a pretty short text, but there's some interesting sort of side journeys I think we can take. So I'm reading uh, just 18 to 19, I think. And I'm reading in the Common English Bible. Okay. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ took place. When Mary, his mother, was engaged to Joseph before they were married, she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man. Because he didn't want to humiliate her, he decided to call off their engagement quietly. Hmm. 
So one of the things that I think is confusing for a lot of us modern readers and especially modern Christian readers is this whole thing about how marriage works. The language here in the CEB is Mary was engaged to Joseph. You sometimes see that as betrothed to Joseph and the specified as before they were married. Can you help us think a little bit about what's going on here? Yeah, with what's going on here? You know, I, I can tell you what what I know or what I think I know, and then you may have some other details to fill in. So first, for at least first marriages at this time, and I say first marriages not because divorce was so common, but because people died. <laughs> people yeah. died younger. And so often over the course of a life, people would have more than one spouse. When sometime between puberty and, you know, the late teen years, a girl would become betrothed to a man. And I use girl and man, you know, sort of pointedly because the man was usually maybe 30, you know, notably older. Right. And this was put together by their families. They may not even have met each other before. But right. the agreement could be in place for quite a while before they are actually wed or to be more, I don't know, crass, but also specific about it before they're sleeping together. Right. There could be an agreement that like they are going to form this family union, but but nothing is happening with it yet. So when the text says before they lived together, that's sort of what I take this time to be. There's been an agreement that they will form a family. They will be married, but either because she's too young or for some other reason, it, it hasn't it hasn't happened yet. But during this time, certainly you would not be expecting the 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 girl, the young woman to come up pregnant because you wouldn't expect her to be sexually active with anyone, including the right. person person to whom she is betrothed, and certainly not to anyone else either. Oh, that's so helpful, Amy. And yeah, you were talking about uh, the girls being quite young. I, the rabbinic text from this period set the minimum age for a girl to be married at 12 and the mm-hmm. minimum age for a boy at 13. But I think mm-hmm. you're right, is that oftentimes it was a, a, like a, the girl was on the low end of that spectrum and the man would be quite a bit older. There's all sorts of stories that get filled in in the Christian tradition about Joseph and you know, what his lineage was and how old he was. But the biblical text doesn't actually give us any of that. What you're saying about betrothal is exactly right. And the practice would have been that they are legally bound to each other Mm -hmm. at the time of the betrothal. So it's a little more binding than what we think of as an engagement. Like an engagement is like, we think we're probably going to get married. You know what I mean? And most many people do. Most people do, maybe, but sometimes people break engagements, and that's very different than like getting a divorce. Mm-hmm. Betrothal was more. It was like the pre. I mean, you were legally bound and had to get a divorce if you were betrothed. If I mean, if you, if you wanted to, to dissolve the relationship, it was practice of divorce. So what's happened here, presumably, is that there has already been the exchange of the marriage document, the ketuvah. There has already been the exchange of the bride price. Mary is still living with her family. Joseph's still living with his family, or at least in his place. And they visit from time to time, but they're not yet. Like the transfer from the mm-hmm. household of the father to Joseph's household has not yet taken place. Oh, that's and, really helpful. I didn't realize they already had the 
the ketubah and the, you know, whatever exchange of a ring or what, you know, all all of that stuff. Yeah. So they are, yeah, they're bound. They're bound. So legally they're, legally they are bound in the same way that they will be bound in marriage. They just Mm -hmm. haven't joined households yet. And they, and they, because of that, they haven't been sexually Mm -hmm. active yet. So then we get the statement before they were married. So they're betrothed, but they haven't merged households yet. She became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You laugh, and I'm just curious. <laughs> I just like I just feel like it's such a like thrown like kind of throwaway phrase. Yeah. And mine is it's I mean it says the same thing, but it's just in a clearly passive voice. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Like yeah. what? <laughs> and, and again, it is. Yeah. You know, almost, I don't know, dramatic irony. It's giving us that information. Like, how did this happen? How is she pregnant? Right. Before Joseph knows. And who the heck knows what Mary knows? Right. I mean, that that poor girl. (laughs) I I just, I can't imagine how shocking this would actually feel to be inside this story. This is one of the places where the temptation is to go over to Luke's gospel and say, well, the, mm-hmm. but Gabriel already announced it to her. She, she knows what's up. But yeah. Matthew doesn't tell us that part. And so I, yeah. I appreciate the way that you're sticking with it there and saying, like, who knows what she's thinking? Like, we get Luke's version of what she's thinking in the other story. But as far as we know here, we, we just don't know what is in Mary's head, what she knows about it. She just suddenly turns up pregnant. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, I mean, there's obviously there's got to be implications for being betrothed and pregnant when you haven't had sex with your husband. I mean, I would assume that it it would be considered a, adultery. Yeah. And which is a crime. I mean, I think in the Tanakh, it's a like a capital punishment crime like you, is, you can't yeah. you can't you can't do that if you are legally bound to if you are legally bound to if you are a woman who is legally bound to a man you cannot be with another man you, you know it's it's a very big deal there's a interesting passage in Deuteronomy 22 starting in verse 23 that deals pretty directly with this situation It says, if a young woman who is a virgin is engaged to one man and another man meets up with her in a town and has sex with her, you must bring both of them to the city gates there and stone them until they die. The young woman, because she didn't call for help in the city, and the man, because of the fact that he humiliated his neighbor's wife. Interestingly, that text goes on to say, if he meets up with an engaged woman in a field and has sex with her there, only the man will die. And the reason there is because you don't know, maybe she tried to cry out and just nobody heard her. The assumption is in town, if she cried out, someone would have heard her. And so you know, if no one heard her cry out, the assumption is that she went along with that. If in the field, you don't know whether she cried out or not, and therefore you can't accuse her of a capital crime. Yeah. It's such an interesting law in Deuteronomy. It is, and it's, you know, maybe it's, um, I don't know what the word is. I was going to say generous, but I don't know that that's the right word. For its time. It's such an, it's such a strange, I mean, even just the formulation of it in Deuteronomy that like, if a man has sex with a woman in the city, they'll both be stoned yeah. because she didn't cry out. Like, are you kidding? Like, it, yeah. it just, 
there's a real, for me, like a real question about like, what is, what kind of autonomy do we imagine that she has, if any? Like, do we imagine that the woman is a willing participant unless she's screaming or, or, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. That is exactly the assumption that the text is making. Yes. Yeah. That's, I don't, I don't know if I like that assumption, but, yeah. <laughs> but yes, that, that seems to be a, the assumption that, that the text is making. But I think like the way that that comes back here in this text in Matthew, it's so interesting to me how little this section of text talks about Mary. I mean, basically not at all what, yeah. what Mary's experience has oh, been. Yeah. But to think about like, what is Joseph picturing has happened? Like that his wife was a, that his betrothed, his betrothed was a willing participant in something or, or maybe wasn't a willing participant, but it doesn't really matter because now her body has been sort of claimed by some other man or I don't know. It just, it doesn't go into all of that, but I can only imagine how, how complicated that would have been for both of them. But I'm especially curious about Mary. Yeah. I think this text doesn't give us anything at all. I think, I think that's important about Mary and it's very much focused on Joseph and his experience of this. And you kind of want that. You want to know more. You want to retrieve Mary's character and like try to think about like what were the implications for her. Matthew's not at all interested in that, which doesn't mean we can't be interested mm-hmm. in it. Mm-hmm. But it does mean that that was not really important to him in the way he tells the story. That's right. What is important to him is that Joseph is righteous. Mm-hmm. The word there is dikaios, which... I think it's righteous in the sense of obedient to the Torah, I think is probably the best way to understand that. Is that how you how you understood righteous? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm not sure if there's a particular reference to a section of Torah that suggests that, I mean, you just read read a section that suggests that there should be certainly some kind of shaming, although they don't know who the man would be in this case, but yeah. Do you know something else in Torah that suggests that like trying to avoid shaming someone who it seems has committed adultery would be the better way to go? I don't know. Like the way that I read this is Joseph is a righteous guy, meaning he tries to live out the Torah as best he can. Yeah. And yet he's about to make a decision here that, does not follow the letter of the law Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to the extent that he could choose to sort of take it out on her if he wanted to. Right. So he chooses to be more lenient than he could be. Yeah. And that's being interpreted as righteousness. Yes. Yes. That's a much better way of saying what I was trying to get to. There was a conversation in the Bible Room Collaborative about like, is this really that great? Like, <laughs> so people were being a little hard on Joseph. Like, so you're not gonna, I mean, I think maybe legitimately so. So you're, you're not gonna have her stoned to death in the, in the public gate. Like, yeah. good on you, Joseph. So you're just gonna divorce her quietly. I don't know. I don't know. Can you get in the head of Joseph a little bit here? And like, do you feel empathetic towards him? Like, you're a good guy here, Joseph. Or do you, What's your reaction to him? 
That's a good question. Okay, I'm gonna try to get I'm gonna try to get into like an empathetic space for Joseph. I do feel some empathy for him here because he doesn't have any relationship with Mary yet necessarily. We don't know that they have any real sense of connection to each other, though they have a legal connection. And as far as he can tell, he is Mary has immediately broken that, like the parameters of that legal connection, which seems like it would raise some questions about a person's character whom you've never met before. And there also, there's a lot of concern at this time in history and maybe still so of like, who is the father of the baby growing in a woman's belly? Yeah. And, you know, this, this child will be a responsibility, you know, for you for a long time. And, I don't people people really wanted to be able to they wanted to have that information without being able to do like a paternity test. Yeah. I don't think it's unreasonable for Joseph to just say like, "Okay, like you you've pretty immediately broken the agreement that we had here. I don't want to get all mixed up in whatever is happening." Even if he doesn't have judgment around it that's like you are you're a harlot and I can, you know, like even right. if he doesn't have that kind of moral judgment about it, it's, it, it, it's certainly outside the norm of what you would ask a, a man to do in his, I was going to say in his first marriage, but really in any marriage to, to step into a situation like this. I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable for him to want to dissolve their agreement at this point. I think that seems right to me. And, you know, it was possible to have a divorce and especially in case of infidelity. And so he's still here thinking about following like the legal practice of Judaism. He's just doing like, he's sort of got options in front of him. One of which is more like, I'm going to shame this person in public. Mm -hmm. And the other is I'm going to extract myself from this complicated social arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. Both of them are bad for Mary. One would assume like, being unwed and pregnant would have been a very difficult life for her. And he's going to sort of let her figure that out, but at least he's not going to do it by way of having her publicly shamed and possibly stoned. Yeah, no, it, it seems like the what, the way that I would, it's like what I would think about now is, I don't know, I was going to say taking the high road, but maybe it's not that so much as like keeping your hands clean. Like I'm not getting mixed up in whatever's happening here. At all. I'm just getting out of this. Yeah. The kind of the way that I'm thinking about it is like in this patriarchal culture, there is an honor shame about it. And Mm -hmm. having your spouse pregnant is shameful in that system. Like some other man has sort of bested you. And there's implications for that for Joseph. Mm -hmm. How Whatever we might think about that. And so he has chosen not to sort of reclaim his sort of dignity or his honor in that situation, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but to extricate himself. We might wish more from him, you know, like believe Mary when, I mean, we don't know what she says to him or if she even understands what's happening. We might wish something more for him, but within the context of his social situation, I think he is actually, I think you're right. He's being fairly generous within the system that's, that's given to him. Hi, I'm Reverend Joanna Herriter, pastor of Peace Mennonite Church in Lawrence, Kansas. Last year was my first year preaching through the Narrative Lectionary, 
and Bible Worm quickly became my first and usually most significant Bible study tool each week. I love the lighthearted yet in-depth textual analysis and the attention to issues of social justice. Sometimes I just want to take Amy and Bobby's closing thoughts and offer that as my sermon. But I don't, I promise. This year, I decided to support Bible Worm financially and join their Patreon at the basic $4 a month level. If you're one of those responsible preachers who start sermon prep more than five days before the sermon, you can support at a slightly higher level to get early access to the content. Just go to patreon.com slash Podcast. Let's all do our little bit to help Bobby and Amy continue creating this valuable resource. And now back to this week's podcast. Now, while he's thinking about this, we get this notice in, beginning in verse 20. As he was thinking about this, an angel from the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because the child she carries was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So in this version of the story, we get the divine announcement to Joseph rather than to Mary. And so Joseph continues to be the main character here. I'm trying to think about like, do you you read this as like a satisfying, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like if you were Joseph and an angel said this to you, would you be like, oh yeah, cool. All right. I mean, that's what I was thinking too. Like, is this, what do you mean conceived from the Holy Spirit? Like, is this a category of thing that could happen like what <laughs> what i i just i can't imagine how that how that information would have hit joseph yeah what do you mean conceived by the holy spirit and i know the text is going to go on to talk about isaiah and we'll we'll get to that in a minute but putting that that aside i don't know it's I guess to I guess what it does for me is to is to just try to extricate the whole thing from the honor shame system in yeah. some way. You haven't been shamed here. Other people might think you have been, but you haven't been. Yeah. And yeah, something something miraculous is is happening. But I can't I, Yeah, it seems like just so categorically different than anything that they could have imagined was a possible <laughs> A, a possible occurrence in a human body. I, I don't know. It's. Do you find it satisfying? What do you think Joseph would have thought of this? No, I really appreciate what you're saying there. And, you know, the ancient world was not as reluctant about the possibility of miraculous mm. pregnancy as, as we probably are. You, you read stories from time to time in Greek mythology and elsewhere about humans who are born from some sort of union between a human woman or or a human man anyway where one parent is human Mm -hmm. and the other is divine so you end up with a sort of demigod class which would be one way of understanding how joseph would have handled this information Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that's really helpful but nonetheless so you'd be like wow like oh my goodness this is you know like only super important people Mm -hmm. had that status in the ancient world and so you would be pretty excited about that. I think it might not be quite as strange to Joseph as it sounds to us, Mm -hmm. but the piece that you raised there that I thought was so interesting was you said something like you haven't been shamed 
even though it might seem like you have, or something like that. And that's so interesting to me because as far as the outside world is going to know, either Joseph and Mary have had sex Mm -hmm. before they're actually supposed to have, which is maybe not the worst thing in the world, but like there is a violation of an agreement there. Or he's raising another man's baby. Mm -hmm. Or they're going to have to go and announce to everyone that this is actually a miraculous child. Which I don't know how much people are going to buy that in the immediate context. And so I'm trying to think if there's something about Joseph here is willing to take on some sort of imputed shame from his community. Mm -hmm. For something that's bigger than that. Yeah. But that he can't really explain to anybody. Yeah. Were you thinking about that? Yeah, I mean, it. Uh, yes. I feel like this, his willingness to stay stay in it through this, it, it, I'm fairly impressed, both because of that, because I think people from the outside will look at the situation and assume that he has been diminished in some way because of Mary's pregnancy, and because... I mean, it kind of makes him the third wheel. Like, you know, pregnancy for a a newlywed couple is usually like this incredible, like shared intimacy. Like you have created this human that is part of each of you. And and now he's like sort of in that intimate relationship with Mary, but also she's also not. And I I don't know. I just, he's, he's stepping into a, a pretty bizarre situation. It is interesting because, I mean, Joseph does have a role here, but I like your, like the third wheel, being the third wheel to the Holy Spirit. Like that's, that's pretty intense. (laughs) His role here seems at some level to be given by that address there, Joseph, son of David. Like that's, that's Joseph's role here, right? Is to be from the family of David. Mm. Some people raise questions in this text. I mean, and they're reasonable questions about if Jesus is not biologically related to Joseph, why Mm -hmm. does it matter that Joseph is from the house of David? Can you help us think about that at all? I think it's a good question. I mean, (laughs) I guess I, we, I, I, the way that I would start to talk about it is really, um, I feel like a more, uh, a less, biological way of thinking of family and sort of what yeah. what create what makes a person who they are yeah. and you know we can the sort of nature versus nurture and in, in some ways but it's just it that seems so sort of uh stepping to the side from the the biblical tradition of genealogy that I have understood up to this point and so I don't know if I'm importing it from a more modern time or if really like the the buds of it are are here precisely as you're saying because it's pointing out Joseph's genealogy and why that's making him an important part of this he's not just the guy who happened to be betrothed to Mary like right. he was chosen for this in some way even if his role at this moment is just to stay in it we're going to talk more about the Joseph's genealogy in a couple of weeks, but I think what you're saying there is really important. And, you know, we have seen, at least in our special episodes this season, we've seen a little bit about there is some flexibility in Israelite culture 
around like exactly who does a child belong to? We talked about mm-hmm. leveret marriage mm-hmm. in the story of mm-hmm. Tamar in Genesis 38. And mm-hmm. there it's the actual biological father of a child and the family line to which the child belongs can is a little bit flexible. So you're going to mm-hmm. have a mm-hmm. child, but you're going to let it be your brother's child. But this is s- similar in that sense that what Joseph is providing is the family structure that gives Jesus his identity. So the Holy Spirit mm. has played the role of the father in this pregnancy. Mary's job is to be the woman through whom the child comes into the world. Joseph's job in this in this relationship is to be the family structure that adopts Jesus. So Jesus becomes a part of his family in a way that can happen in, in other contexts. But Joseph had to do this or else Jesus would not have been descended from David, which is kind of an interesting, like his role here actually mm. turns out to be really important, even though it is pretty third wheelish on the face of it. I love that, that it is a really important role, even if it's not the totality of what that role typically looks like, you know, as a, as that, if, if you were the biological father. Right. Yeah. I like that. The other piece that's here is the naming of Jesus. So you will call him Jesus. Mm-hmm. And then the reason is given, he will save his people from their sins. What should we know about that naming of Jesus? I mean, the I assume the Hebrew that they're referring back to with the name Jesus is Yehoshua, which is yeah. Joshua. And, you know, there are a right. couple of, we, there's the book of Joshua, but there are also some other Joshuas through history. So the name itself is not, it's not a new name. It's It's known from the tradition. I think that's really important. It's a pretty common name. And sometimes we think of Jesus as being like sort of weirdly exceptional, but there were lots of, there were lots of Jesuses running around, lots of Joshua's and, you know, like (laughs) this is, he's got a name that other people also have that was familiar in his culture. And also for him, it has particular significance because he'll save his people. Yeah. I'm not sure what else to say about it. Although it seems really striking to me now that you say it that way, that that he did, that he, you know, it's like, he's a little Robert. Like, you know, yeah. like he, like he just, he just has a regular name, but this incredible meaning attached to it. Maybe it keeps some sense of like the, you know, secrecy still, or, you know, a little bit of shrouded identity for Jesus that like, yes, this is what his name means, but the name itself is not going to stop anyone in their tracks and say, what is special about this human. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. It's just a regular name. It's, in the Protestant world, anyway, we don't really name people Jesus. Like, you, mm-hmm. you never meet anybody who's like, here's my kid Jesus. But, you know, in, especially in Latin American cultures, there's lots of people named lots, Jesus. for sure. And then lots of people in Jewish tradition named Joshua and Christian tradition, too. And so I think that's important to to remember that sort of the commonality of the name. And also here it has a special significance. The name, of course, I think we might have gestured to Yehoshua literally means the Lord will save. And so here it's being applied to Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. I'm also trying to decide, you know, we have talked about another Joshua this season. Mm. Back in the book of Joshua 24, 
And I'm trying to decide whether we ought to read this Jesus in light of that Joshua in some way. Oh gosh. Or not. I'm trying to think of what I'm trying to think of what would be a fruitful a fruitful reading to take from Joshua of the book of Joshua. The and the only thing that's really coming to mind and I don't I don't know that it's valid is the idea that you know there's the generation of Moses and yeah. then and then there's the new generation of Joshua. Yeah. And like part of the whole deal is that Moses can't live forever and the next generation has to figure out how to live into the next chapter of their relationship, of their covenant. I don't know if that means that Joshua, the name Joshua could sort of eternally signify the idea of the next generation, but certainly this is a next generation kind of story. I really love that, Amy. Because Joshua is taking over from Moses and taking the Torah of Moses and showing the people or inviting the people to live it out in a new context. And in a sense, that's exactly what Jesus is doing, is taking the Torah in, in yet another new context and showing the people how to live that covenant in, a, in yet another new context. I think, that's, I think that's a really insightful reading. I like that. Bobby, why do we say Jesus instead of Joshua? Is that just how the Greek is written? That's the Greek, yeah. Yeah. Jesus. And so that's actually what Joshua is called in the Septuagint. In the Septuagint. That's so, the word's so the same. interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yep. No, it's in, yeah. Because you miss, you lose that connection, but that's, that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. So Matthew then connects this to the Hebrew scripture in yet another way, picking up in verse 22. Now, all of this took place so that what the Lord had spoken through the prophet would be fulfilled. Then quoting, look, a virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did just as an angel from God commanded and took Mary as his wife. But he didn't have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son. Joseph called him Jesus. Amy, this end of this passage raises some really interesting questions about the relationship of the Hebrew scriptures to the ministry of Jesus. Is this passage that's being read here from Isaiah, as you well know, Isaiah is an 8th century prophet, 8th century BCE, so 800 years earlier. The prophecy in its context is about the, how do we, the Syro-Ephraimite war is what it is, where Israel and uh, Syria are attacking Judah in the time of King Ahaz and Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says, hold the course or there will be no course to hold. And he says, ask me for a sign. And Ahaz refuses to ask for a sign. So Mm -hmm. Isaiah says, fine, if you want to ask for a sign, I'll give you one. And then he says, look, that young woman will conceive. And before her child is weaned, this war that we're entering into will be over. Now it's interesting because that like Isaiah himself has a very short term prophecy. I mean, basically what he's saying is, this civil war that's going on within the next, I don't know, like two years mm-hmm. is going to resolve itself in the time of King Ahaz. So King Ahaz, like, just relax a little bit and trust in God. That seems to be Isaiah's point. Matthew then takes that and says, in fact, this is about Jesus and the, the young woman in Hebrew, Betula, mm-hmm. but in Greek, Parthenos, which means virgin, 
which is what Matthew's reading, a virgin, that is Mary, is going to become pregnant and give birth to a son, that is Jesus, and you're going to name him Emmanuel. So suddenly this thing in Isaiah that was not at all about a future Messiah comes to be about a future Messiah. What do we do with all that? <laughs> well, 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 yes. Well, I, I mean, I, okay, so oh, there's, there's so m- I will tell you what is most sort of pressing in my mind, but I don't know if it's actually the most important thing. I feel like part of what feels so uh, pointed the way that this comes into the New Testament is the idea that this woman is a virgin. Yeah. I think the Hebrew word there is actually alma. Oh, that might be right. Instead of batula, which, I mean, I it really just means a young woman. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe she's a virgin, but there's nothing in the text that really suggests yeah. that, her, that, that anything strange is happening here. It's just that a young woman is giving birth and... And within the next few years, the, you know, the war will resolve itself. And I feel like if, if you took, if you took the, out the word virgin and said young woman <laughs> in this translation, it would just be bizarre. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. I'd... I think that's right. Because Isaiah, I think in the, especially in the Hebrew version of Isaiah, which seems to be more original, what he's saying is in the time it takes for mm-hmm. a woman who has not yet conceived to conceive, have a child and wean that child, that's how long we've got until this situation resolves itself. It right. is not trying to predict a virgin birth. Right. I think that's really, really important. But you're exactly right. Like here, that's ex- that is the essential point is that it is that this is a, about a virgin birth. And that the Greek translation, which does use the word virgin, lends itself to that Christian interpretation in a really important way, mm-hmm. but probably not what Isaiah himself had originally intended. But I think that, you know, my fixation on that in some ways is is a distraction from the bigger question that you raise, which is sort of these texts in the Hebrew Bible had an immediate context right. that that played out at that time. And so how do we think about that as as modern folks reading these texts like can can we read the text as referring both to the near term that Isaiah intended and also to this sort of whether or not we think Isaiah meant it that there was some other resonance to it in the future do we do that now like do we look back and you know find ancient texts and look for ways they could tell us things about you know about our life that that clearly the author couldn't have known i don't know i think I think humans like to do that. (laughs) Humans like to find new resonances for old texts, maybe because we have like an inherent like trust in these texts that are old and sacred. And we can't imagine that they're, they really were just referring to something that was going to happen within five years. Like we we need more information. Yeah. And then especially once, once messianic beliefs became such a big part of uh, of Jewish life at this time, like that, that people had expectations. And so they were looking for anywhere that they could get hints in scripture. And, and this is where they landed. But it is, I think it's challenging, but also important to be able to read it in both of its contexts. 
I think that's really important, Amy. And I mean, it raises the question of, you know, if Isaiah is your sacred scripture and it was written to an eighth century audience dealing with eighth century issues, then like, in what way is that meaningful to you as scripture any longer? Yeah. Yes. We're still reading that yes. text. I mean, we just read it like two weeks ago or whatever, not that text, but Isaiah. And we said, no, look, look, look what this has to do with today. Yes. And so like, that is the way that people operate. I think that's yeah. so helpful. A couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the Habakkuk Pesher from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what mm-hmm. they were doing mm-hmm. in the Dead that's Sea right. Scrolls. Reading Habakkuk as a prophecy of the teacher of righteousness. So mm-hmm. this is not just something that Christians do right. to the Jewish scripture. It is also things that uh, Jewish sectarians were doing to Jewish scriptures as well. Yeah. My approach is always, and I mean, I'm so annoying about this. Like, it means both things. It means all the things. But I like to read Isaiah in its original context and then to read it in its, like, what is Matthew going to do with it? And, like, both of those are really interesting to me. Yeah. Bobby, is there, it might be that people just believe all kinds of different things, but in in the in the way that the the church or the Christian community reads, you know, a text like this, is there an understanding that, like, Isaiah, the human being Isaiah, in some way meant it in both ways, or that Isaiah was saying the words that came to him and didn't know, like it's and and didn't know about a reference other than the immediate reference. I think it gets interpreted both of those ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isaiah thought he was prophesying about something in his own time, and also it had more significance than he understood. Mm-hmm. Some mm-hmm. people will actually read it yet a third way, which is Isaiah thought he was talking about one thing, but he really wasn't talking about it at all. He was talking about, he thought he was talking about his own time, but in fact, he was talking about something that happened later. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's particularly helpful. So that would really be sort of like the prophet is the mouthpiece, but you don't yeah. even know what you're saying. He didn't know what he was talking about. And yeah. no one there would have understood what he was saying either. So it just right. is sort of the purpose of this is to write it down right. for the future. Yeah. I do think there are Christians who would think that Isaiah thought, knew that he was prophesying the birth of a Messiah 800 years after his own time. Mm. One of the things that is also interesting in the Dead Sea Scrolls is they they found these scrolls of Florilegia which are like, I don't know. They're like, when I was a kid, I used to read Reader's Digest and they had a section in there called Quotable Quotes, which was just like these quotes from these like master works of literature or whatever. They were just kind of interesting or said something worth knowing. And so it was just like a collection of quotations and you could be like, hey, this quote. And you could sound sophisticated, even though you never read any of the actual <laughs> books. Like you just read Quotable Quotes in the Reader's <laughs> Digest. Great. But people were doing this in the, First, right around the turn of the millennium, around the time of Jesus, as they were collecting passages from the Hebrew scriptures that seemed to have reference to the Messiah or seemed to have reference to Jesus. Mm. And so it could be that Matthew had that sort of florilegium in front of him rather than the actual text of Isaiah. It was mm. like, oh, here's a passage. He might not have even known the literary context or been thinking about the literary context. He might have just been seeing like, oh, here's a nice quote from Isaiah that seems to be a reference to the Messiah. That's so, that is so interesting and so helpful, Bobby, because one of my questions reading this, this little section here was the line, the beginning of verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what had been spoken. Yeah. It just seems like such a strange 
way of imagining how the world works. Like not that the role of a prophet was to foresee something in the future, but the role of the future is to unfold in a way oh, that yeah. fulfills something that has been said. Do you, do you think I'm overreading that? Or is there some kind of, like, how does time work in this <laughs> imagining? It's all timey-wimey. Yeah. <laughs> I get all twisted around. Like, every time I try to articulate my thought on this, I, I get, like, yeah, I get stuck in this weird vortex. No, I, I never really thought of it that way. But the, the events are unfolding to conform to the way it was prophesied. Unless you're just reading, unless really you're reading the prophecies as like, I guess, as signs. And so and so the future has to unfold in particular detail in order to give people those like signposts. Like this is how you're supposed to know what's happening. Right. Like I think that's how it functions is to say yeah. these things that we see in the life of Jesus are fulfillments of those things that were prophesied. So, you, so we know they're connected. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting the way that that is said is like these things had to unfold this way because that's how Isaiah said they were going to unfold. Right. Like if Isaiah misspoke, then they'd have to, you know, like the baby would be green or whatever, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because I mean, the other way of, of reading it is to say like, okay, this is what happened in the Jesus story. So let's go back and find places in the Hebrew scriptures that seem to be attesting to that, yeah. which may be what they were actually doing. But like, right. you don't want to say that's what you're doing because that sounds like. Yeah. We're going back to find what we already know instead of saying this had to happen this way because look, it was already there. That's a much stronger sort of theology. Matthew is quite famous for these fulfillment citations and we'll see him doing Mm -hmm. it at various points throughout his gospel. But he's very clear that the story of Jesus is unfolding like in these kind of detailed ways within the framework established in the prophetic text of the Hebrew scripture. And, And maybe the Hebrew scripture is more broadly that's really important to him that this thing that's happening with jesus is not some sort of new different thing it is a playing out of everything that has been said before now Mm. amy i really love the name emmanuel the reason the main reason is because when i was learning hebrew that was the first time that hebrew kind of clicked for me is i like was like one of the first exercises I did in like Seattle's grammar was like Emmanuel and I was like Emmanuel and I like struggled and struggled I was like Emmanuel I was so excited (laughs) it was like the first time I was like oh wow Hebrew is cool it's such a beautiful name can you say more about that like the name Emmanuel I mean it's just you know Emmanuel is with us and Ale is God and and the the thought of having a person sort of embedded among you yeah. that is called God is with us. It doesn't, I mean, I know lots of kids named Emmanuel and and it does not suggest that that kid is God, but it's got <laughs> that, but it's yeah. got a little bit of that like feeling in it, yeah. you know, and to be able to like concretize the idea that God is with us in a human, yeah. you know, like this human is named God is with us is, I just really beautiful. Yeah. Really beautiful name. I really love that, Amy. And this is the second name that we've gotten now. So Jesus, which means God will save. And so there's that's just sort of like, I mean, I read that as kind of like God is large and in charge and out mm. there and like saving the people. 
then here we have God is with us, like God is among us. God is like present here with us. And I think those two ways of talking about Jesus are important. And that's a sort of transcendent and imminent presence of God among the people or, or something like that. I love that. I love that. Although it is a little weird to me that it says they shall name him Emmanuel, but they don't. It's true. It is true. But okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like call your idea him too. Emmanuel. Oh, call yeah. him. Okay, fine. That's At least different. that's in. Yeah. Maybe that was his middle name. No, his middle initial is H. <laughs> Jesus H Christ. Do you know <laughs> I, the actual? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. There was an old like way of talking about Jesus, which was Jesus Huias Christos, which is Jesus Son Messiah, Jesus Son mm. Anointed. And that's where Jesus H. Christ, which people use as a swear word, you know? They do, yeah. It actually is like a very old way of referring to Jesus, which I think is kind of funny. I almost <laughs> had a class at Hendrix called Jesus H. Christ that I just that I decided. It's going to be like a theology class. And I decided. <laughs> this is when I was young and untenured. And you could do it now. Possible. Now you can pull it off. Now I can do it. I can totally do it. But I'm not too old to care anymore. <laughs> so the last couple of verses here just kind of bring the story to a close. I don't know if there's mm-hmm. anything particularly important, but he, I mean, we basically get the Joseph woke up and did what the angel said. And but then, why does it specify that they don't have marital relations until she had born a son? I mean, to me, it's like, you've got to guard against the interpretation that Jesus is just Joseph's actual kid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's sort of like that, story when Abraham trades off Sarah. I was just thinking of that, that they have to be so careful to specify that Sarah never was was with this guy, lest someone think that Isaac is not Abraham's child. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. So for the reader of Matthew, it needs to be clear that there's no ambiguity about who the father of this child is. By the way, there is a tradition that develops in Christianity in which Mary and Joseph never had sexual relations, that she, Mary was a perpetual virgin. Mm-hmm. This verse actually seems to suggest that they did have sexual relationships after Jesus was born. But there's a, there is a tradition in, in some strands of Christianity that see Mary as perpetually a virgin. That last sentence, Joseph called him Jesus, I think is really important, even though it's a very simple sentence. But it it shows the obedience of Joseph to do what he was told and that gives the name that was given in the dream. Mm-hmm. And when Joseph names Jesus, I read that as Joseph has now claimed Jesus as a member of his own family. And so that sort of seals the deal in terms of Jesus coming from the line of David. Yeah, that's that's a really helpful layer that you've added in there for me today that that the naming is is sort of like a you know I don't know formal adoption or so, you know some way to really locate Jesus within the household and lineage of Joseph. Yeah. Yeah. So Amy I'll preface our closing question by way of saying like it, it's clear enough to me I don't know if I'm allowed to say this why the Luke 2 text is the more famous <laughs> well-known Christmas text because mm. there's so much richness in there to talk about. And I feel like this text, I don't know, it means rich, but I just don't even know. 
I'm so curious, like what you're going to say in terms of like, what do you notice in this text and what does it have to do with the world in which we're currently living? Mm. Seems like a harder question for this text than for the Luke 2 text to me. Yeah, this definitely is a quieter story. Mm. You know, I keep thinking back to when we were talking about Joseph and you know, as we pointed out, like, I sure would like to know what Mary thought of this, but Matthew's not yeah. going to tell us. So we can yeah. we can just put that as, I don't know. You know, that's not what Matthew's yeah. telling us about. Fine. But to try to get into the head of Joseph, who, you know, it, from from outside appearances, like, this is not this is not what was supposed to happen. This is not his expectation of what his role was going to be. People are going to look at him People might look at him funny or think that he has been, he's had his dignity diminished in some way. And there's this, uh, there's a Hebrew word. I can't remember if I've talked about it before on this podcast, but um, anava, which is translated as humility, but it's not humility that's like you have to make yourself really small. It's sort of you have to know when when to be bigger and when to dial it back like what is what is your god-given role in this place and in this situation um so it's it's constantly a balance and i i see in joseph here like a really sort of active sense of anava like all the things that he would think are his sort of entitlements as a man who is betrothed and is about to be wed you know several of them are kind of dialed back and he gets this other role that like, no, but you need to step into fatherhood of this child. Like you don't, don't be totally passive. Like you, you do have a role here that you need to step into, but it's not, it's not what you expected and it's not what society has told you it's going to be like. And he just does it. Like he, (laughs) like he just does all of it, which is, which is pretty remarkable, like the the sort of lack of ego that is apparent in Joseph here yeah. is like kind of stunning. I mean, I think some of it is probably because the text is just really short, so we don't really know what anyone feels about anything. But everything I have read about what it was like to be a man in society at this time you had certain you had expectations of certain honor in your life and and this is sort of immediately being, you know, he's not going to get that kind of honor. He's going to get a different kind of honor, but nobody is going to recognize it. Yeah. And he just takes it. He says, he says, okay. And that's pretty crazy. In a I good way. That, that's good crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Because it, it was reminding me a little bit of our conversation about Esther and maybe for a time such as this mm, and we, at mm-hmm. that we were sort of asking like, what's like, what's brought you to this point and like, what can you contribute? And, but I love where you took that was, whereas Esther like saves the Jewish people in this dramatic way, like Joseph offers his family line to this baby. Mm-hmm. He marries a woman even though maybe it's going to end up bringing shame to him because people don't know the whole story. And so I love that. He does, he offers what he has to offer, even though it's not very impressive and it doesn't reflect well on him. 
And Joseph is kind of an afterthought. Like in this text, he's front and center. But in the Christian tradition, it's like, Joseph, like, I mean, yeah, all right. But like, let's talk about Mary. And so I I like that he ends up sort of taking the back seat in the tradition. And he seems to be and he seems to be fine with that. That's such a beautiful way of reading that. But as you pointed out, he's needed because he is. Yeah, they need to put Jesus in the lineage of Davis. And he is he is the ticket. But the tech. Yeah. Yeah. All you need to do is keep your mouth shut. <laughs> be who you are. <laughs> like, don't divorce her. Right. Be who you are. Yeah. Don't divorce her. Just keep going forward. Name yeah. the, give the kid a name. Yeah. What What's rising up for you today, Bobby? I really love that interpretation. The other piece related to the naming to me is what we were talking about a little bit earlier. The two names that Jesus mm. gets here. Mm-hmm. And trying to read those theologically and to say that both of those names are important. And so the one name, both the fact that it's a common name, which it's not unique to Jesus. In fact, there's all, I mean, there's other Jesuses, I think even in Jesus's own family line, there's other people named Jesus and like Ben Sirah, who wrote the book of Ecclesiasticus, his name was Jesus. There's, there's Jesus's running around but that it has a particular importance for him. So this is another one of those kind of, here's something that seems common that actually has this deep importance. Mm-hmm. But the issue of um, that combination of God saves and also Emmanuel, God is with us, and the importance of how those two things hold together in the Jesus story Um, as something about who Jesus is, but also something about who God is, which is true not just in the Jesus story, but in the story of the Hebrew scriptures as well. God is a God who is fundamentally present and also God who is in the business of saving people. And those those two parts belong together. I love that, Bobby. I love that. I I mean, I love both of it. The fact that it's, this is, the name itself doesn't mark him as special. And just that, yeah, the way that you're talking about God is this sort of big, uh, big thing that's bigger than us and outside of us and can save us. And also something that's right here, right here next to you, right here with you. I mean, man, if we could just build a whole theology on that, like that, that's exactly the thing, like, right. That's exactly what's so hard to wrap our heads around when we're, when we're talking about God is how can God be so big and also be right here and yet the Hebrew Bible tells us it's so, and the New Testament tells us it's so, and and here it is, wrapped up so succinctly in those two names. Yeah, I think it's especially poignant in the Christmas season in my tradition because like that name is given to this little baby who's just been born. And so it's not just God is present, but God is present in this little tiny mm. innocent, like powerless little baby that's one of my favorite things about christmas it's like a little baby named god is with us yeah it's just that's profound in a lot of ways so amy the text for next time is luke 2 1 to 20 we've talked about this text a couple of times and so what we've decided to do is to put up a version from previously i think we're going to use our uh, season two recording of that podcast. And so the next time we'll be back 
with a new episode. We'll be in the genealogy of Matthew in Matthew 1, 1 to 17. I do love a genealogy, Bobby. I'm going to be curious <laughs> what, what we might have to say about that genealogy. I love a challenge. Good, good. Well, thank you as always, Bobby, and I will see you next time. All right. I'll see you then, Amy. Thanks. Okay. for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Podcast for details. Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dan O'Song. Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters for helping to make this podcast possible. Watch for our special Christmas Eve episode later this week, and then join us next week as we begin our spring study of Matthew's Gospel with the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 1-17. Until then, keep on digging.